Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, January 23rd, 2018. Light episode today. Some pastoral duties tomorrow, so. And today. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program. That dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down. Stop. Open up your Bible and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolates, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching that is put forward Far from biblical, far from what God's Word says, and there's a lot of people making merchandise of people, teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach, and really making void the Word of God and teaching man-made doctrines and stuff. Now, part of the way in which you identify that requires you to, well, subject yourself to preaching and teaching that attempts to actually work through texts. (laughs) <laughs> and to exegete it and pull it and point it to Christ and you know and actually rightly handle what's in there. That's kind of the idea. So uh, today uh, we're going to do it a little bit different on the light episode. It'll be a little bit longer. Uh, we're going to begin with the sermon I delivered this past Sunday. This past Sunday. And uh, looking at the first three chapters of the book of Jonah and a little bit of the gospel of Mark chapter 1. The name of the uh, the sermon in question that we will be listening to is the first fisher of men, technically on Mark 1, 14 through 20. And then when we're done listening to the sermon, we'll take a break and we'll come back and we'll listen to a full uh, the full Sunday school lesson I delivered this past Sunday titled uh, Right Choice, Wrong Reasons. And each of these, uh, you know, each of the sermon and the Sunday school lesson really are designed to work together and kind of flesh out a bigger issue or bigger topic, and that has to do with the topic of 
evangelism, evangelism, the, the going out and understanding that it's, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and, uh, and that God's word does stuff when you actually preach and proclaim it because it's living and active. That's kind of the idea. So, uh, and you should say, actually, God is the one who does stuff through his word. That's a better way of putting it. So uh, let's get to it. Uh, first part today, uh, the uh, sermon titled, uh, The First Fisher of Men. Here we go. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brothers of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the gospel of the Lord. In the name of Jesus, I'm like any red-blooded dude. I like to fish, but it's been a long time since I've done so. But when I was a kid growing up in Southern California, I liked to go fishing. Problem is, when you live in the valley portion of Southern California, there's not a lot of good fishing holes. So I went to this place called Santa Fe Dam. Not all that great of a place. But they would stock it with like stockfish, you know, like a little rainbow trout and maybe some bass and stuff like that. And it was always a lot of fun to catch the fish. The thing I enjoyed the most was actually eating them. You know, in fact, I kind of liked certain fish. I mean, catfish, oh, rainbow trout with butter and garlic. Oh, I even like tuna, Who go figure. And not only tuna cooked, but even like sushi. Now, I know some of you are thinking, why on earth would you eat bait? No, I get it. I get it. But see, it doesn't matter if it's fried, grilled, or raw. Fish is good stuff. In fact, you know, I just like to think of it this way. The fruit of fishing is what they call the bomb diggity. And unless you're the fish... (laughs) Yeah, maybe I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here. <laughs> I, yeah, so, but you got to consider this. I'm going to interrupt my own thought here. Fishing is great, and the fruit of fishing is great, unless you're the fish. Fishing does not equal life for the fish, uh, quite the opposite. Fishing kills the fish. For the fish, fishing is death. And uh, so you have to think of it this way. So we're going to note that our Old Testament text and our New Testament text are working together, if you would, and you're going to note that the story of Jonah is an evangelism text. I don't think a lot of people think of it that way, but it is. And our gospel text today is also an evangelism text. But it's kind of important that we work out how this works because you have this story where in the Old Testament, if you pay attention to the details, you have the first fisher of men. And the first fisher of men is actually a fish. And the... and. <laughs> And it's kind of important. And you'll note that the first fisher of men is this fish. It actually typologically is explained for us by Jesus. And it has everything to do then with evangelism. So, you know, if you kind of think of it this way, in the annals of fish stories, the one that we're going to look at in Jonah, this one ranks up there among the best. And oddly enough, God the Holy Spirit has made this text about evangelism. It's almost as if God knew exactly what he was doing. It's weird how these different themes kind of work out. So let's take a look at Jonah, and we're going to work back through the context itself before we get into our gospel text, and we'll talk a little bit today about evangelism. 
Jonah chapter 1, verse 1 reads this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Rise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of Yahweh. And he went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, talk about foolishness here. I mean, is there anywhere that you can go where you can actually flee the presence of God? I mean, if you were to wander your way into Duluth, Minnesota, would God not be there? If you were to travel all the way to San Francisco, is God not there? Or how about down to the South Pole or maybe up to the North Pole or maybe somewhere just north of Saskatoon? Maybe that's the place where God isn't present. Yes, it doesn't make any sense. So this is kind of foolishness on this part. And we won't get to it today, but it's important to note that when you read the entirety of Jonah, that the reason why Jonah went the other way, the reason why he disobeyed, is because he did not want the Ninevites to be forgiven. He knew that God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and pardoning iniquity, and he didn't want those sinners over there forgiven by God. That's the punchline in all of this. So we know why he fled the opposite direction, but we'll kind of work through this. So he's trying to flee the presence of the Lord, and to which we'd say that's just silly. So, But the Lord, we learn, hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea, so the ship threatened to break up. And the mariners were afraid. Now notice here, Jonah's sin is resulting in turmoil and a deathly, terrible, dangerous situation for other people. Don't think for a second that your sin doesn't impact others. It does. In fact, far more people than you think. And what's fascinating is is that in the midst of this, this sinful prophet who's been told to go and evangelize the Ninevites, he becomes a stand-in for Jesus. But you have to understand that how it all works. So the mariners, they were afraid. They cried out to his God, God, small g. So we're going to learn here these mariners are pagans. They're idolaters. They don't believe in the one true God. And revival is going to break out on the ship in just a minute. But they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise and call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Dang, that sounds eerily close to what we read in the Gospels, where Jesus is asleep on one of these Galilean fishing boats on the Sea of Galilee when a tempest comes up. And the disciples wake Jesus up. Don't you care that we are perishing? And so immediately you can see in this text that there's a close connection between the story of Jonah and the story of Jesus, especially at this point. And it's mind-boggling how this all works because you sit there, when you make the connections, you say to yourself, this can't be accidental. And it's not. God the Holy Spirit, again, knows what he's doing. So they said to come one another, cast lots. Let's cast lots that we may know in whose account this evil has come upon us. I seem to remember them casting lots for the clothes of Christ while he was being crucified. Again, weird details here that all somehow hook into Jesus. So they cast lots. The lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon on, on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? What of what people are you? That's a lot of questions. 
He said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid. And they said to him, what is this thing that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of Yahweh because he had told them. So then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said, pick me up and hurl me into the sea and then the sea will quiet down for you. I know that it's because of me that this great, great tempest has come upon you. And I can't help but see here, I mean, remember Pontius Pilate at his uh, not so anxious willingness to have Jesus crucified, didn't want to kill him. And so here we see these fellows don't want to kill Jonah. They want to see if they can figure out a way to save him. Nevertheless, um, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but God was having none of that. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to Yahweh, O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Yahweh, and the Lord have done, having done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea. The sea ceased its raging, and then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. These fellows, having prayed to the one true God, and then thrown Jonah overboard so that he can be a, quote, sacrifice for sins, You'll see this in the text in a minute. God then takes the tempestuous sea and turns it into a calm glass. Can't help but think about the book of Revelation, which describes the throne of God, and before his throne there is a glassy sea. The chaos of sin is gone, and now the rest of God has arrived. So it says this, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So now we see the first fisher of men was a fish. And the man who got caught got caught by a fish and swallowed up. And the question is, what does it all mean? Well, Jesus actually tells us the answer to what this all means when we look at the cross-reference in Matthew 12, 38 through 40. Here's what it says. Some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered Jesus saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so we understand then that what follows next, the account of Jonah's turmoil and travails inside of the fish, that's type and shadow pointing us to the death and resurrection of Christ. Remember, fishing results in the death of the fish. And in this particular case, this fish having caught Jonah, you were going to say results in his death and his resurrection. And that's a sign then that Jesus picks up for himself. And ultimately it has its true fulfillment in the real death and resurrection of Christ. But listen to Jonah's prayer and you'll see this. Jonah prayed to Yahweh, his God from the belly of the fish. I'm pretty sure he was not on his knees when he did so. <laughs> this had to be awful. Just absolutely awful. So he said, I called out to Yahweh out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Hmm, that seems to hearken to what we confess in the creeds, that Christ descended into hell, that he descended down to the dead, 
to Sheol itself. And so this is, if you would, the prayer of a dead man, which doesn't make any sense if you think about it, but the typology is all pointing to Jesus anyway. And you're going to note that Jonah goes to a watery grave. Hmm, very interesting. Consider your baptisms, if you would, for a minute. Romans 6, 3 through 4 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, we were baptized into his death? Think of baptism as a watery grave, because Jesus himself descended into the depths, if you would, and that's what happened. And when we were baptized, we were joined with him in his death in that watery grave. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And now you begin to see already when you start to connect the typological dots that point to Jesus. We begin to see that when we get to our gospel text, that fishing for men will result also in their death but also in the resurrection. See, we don't fish merely to kill. We fish in order to kill so that people will be made alive. Different kind of fishing altogether, but I wanted to put that down here. Jonah's prayer continues. He says, You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The floods surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. The roots of the mountains. Hmm. Weeds wrapped around my head. That sounds a lot like the thorn of, crown of thorns that Jesus wore on his head. And that's the point, is that Jonah is a stand-in for Christ here. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Yahweh my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered Yahweh. My prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols, they forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. And indeed it does. And so the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. We will not get into the details. That is quite disgusting. But we will note this, that in a very similar way that God the Father, three days after Christ was crucified on the cross, dead and buried, spoke, and the grave, figuratively speaking, vomited Christ out, and the grave is now empty, in the same way that Jonah's fish is now empty. So then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And you're going to note here that now Jonah's different. He's died and risen again. He's now ready to be a fisher of men. And that's the point. Only those who have died and risen again can truly be fishers of men because now death no longer has mastery over them and that's kind of the idea. Only the resurrected can fish in a way that will lead to life for those they are fishing for. So he's prepared now to properly be an evangelist His heart's not quite in it yet, though. We learn that later in chapter 4. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And that's kind of the idea. To be a good fisher of men, you must give the message that God has given you to give. And it's not found in your heart. You don't get to invent it or make it up on the fly. 
It's found in the written word of God. In Jonah's case, it was given to him directly. And so he obeys the Lord. Having died and risen again, Jonah arose, went to Nineveh according to the word of Yahweh. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go out into the city, a day's journey, and he called out. And here was the message that God gave him to give. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the message. 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. These are not his words, they are God's word. Important to note here, in Scripture, 40 is kind of an important number if you pay attention to it. 40 years the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. 40 days Jesus was in the wilderness fasting and being tempted by the devil. Hmm. 40 has to do with wilderness stuff. Kind of that in-between period. And here's the thing. At the end of our wilderness wanderings comes the day of judgment. And that's the idea. And on the day of judgment, you will either enter into the promised land or you will enter into the lake of fire, one or the other. And it's all hinging on whom you are trusting for your salvation. Are you trusting Christ or are you trusting yourself? Do you think, well, I'm, I'm a pretty good person most of the time. Sometimes I clean up my act. And then again, uh, there's other times I'm a wee bit ornery. But God understands I'm just human. You see, you're trusting in yourself. But the one who says, yeah, Lord, I got nothing. I, I literally got nothing. I look at my life and no, there isn't a day that I do not fall short. There isn't a day that goes by where I can honestly say I've kept your law perfectly where I have loved you with my whole heart and have perfectly loved my neighbor as myself for my neighbor's sake. There isn't a day that goes by where I do not have to pray those words that Jesus taught me to pray. Forgive me my trespasses. as I forgive those who trespass against me. You see, that person who realizes he has nothing means he's ready to have Christ, the one who has done everything for him on the cross done everything for him by living a sinless life and by faith as a gift gives him the righteousness that he lacks so that he might be saved. So Jonah went out 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And I have news. I have news. 40 days and Oslo will be overthrown. 40 days Alvarado will be overthrown. 40 days Warren, Grand Forks, Thief River, Crookston, they will all be overthrown. God's word is clear on this. I'm not talking about literal days. But at the end of this time, because today is the day of salvation, when this day is finished, there will be no salvation, no opportunity for grace. Today is the day for grace. Yet 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Now the people of Nineveh, notice it says this, it says they believe God. It doesn't say they believe Jonah. They believe God. You see, Jonah was preaching God's words. So they called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. Notice, they believed first, and now their belief is resulting in action. They believed, and then they fasted. They believed, and they repented in ashes. So the word of the word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne. He removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. 
Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn, repent from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You see, Jonah cast the net of God's words. He cast the net of the Word of God, and now he was hauling in a great catch of men. That's what's going on here. The man who was swallowed by the fish has now become a fisher of men. He was fish bait. Now he is casting the net and hauling in men for God. When God saw how Nineveh had turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. And we must always be reminded of this fact, that there is a disaster that God has made clear is his intent for those in our days, regardless of what city or nation they live in. There is a disaster that God has set up for those who persist in sin and unbelief, who continue to hang on to their evil ways, refuse to believe and repent, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And that disaster is not the overthrowing of their city. It's the overthrowing of the whole earth. And that disaster for those who remain in sin and unbelief is an eternity in the lake of fire, the hell that we all deserve. And it's important to note the disaster that God had called for for Nineveh points to the disaster that God has called for all of us who persist in sin and unbelief. points us to hell. And that those who believe the word of God repent that God will relent of that disaster and not send them into the lake of fire as they deserve. This is most certainly true. So now we return with these thoughts in our mind to our gospel text, which is quite brief, but it makes the point. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You're going to note that Jonah and Jesus are of preachers of the same stripe. They are preachers of repentance, preachers who confront people with their sin, but they also have good news. Good news that God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, pardoning iniquity, that God in Christ has reconciled the world to Himself and offers full pardon and forgiveness of sins for everybody. That's the good news. So repent. Jesus was a repentance preacher. So passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And you're going to note, Jesus now turns into the fisherman, and he is fishing for men. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And that's how that works. The one who went down to Sheol, who died in a watery grave, so to speak, the one who has risen again, the fishing that results in death, he has gone through it and has come out the other end of that fish alive like Jonah. And now he says to us, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You see, Jesus isn't merely speaking to the disciples of that time. He's speaking to disciples of all generations. Brothers and sisters, you are part of those whom Christ has called. He's called you through his word. 
He's called you through His Word to repent of your sins, to believe in Him, to be forgiven. And He has now called you to be fishers of men. If you're not sure of this, let me remind you of Christ's great commission for the church. In Matthew 28, we read, Jesus tells us that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. And He says, Go therefore to all nations, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have commanded. That's our job, collectively. Kongsvinger Lutheran Church, I'm going to step on toes, but I'm going to do it lightly here. Kongsvinger Lutheran Church, although it is a family heirloom, passed down from generation to generation, it's not the building that's the important piece. It's the faith that has been passed down from your fathers and your grandfathers and the people who were here first. It is that faith that is the important part, not the building. And it is that faith in Kongsvinger Lutheran Church, a congregation, a small portion of the greater body of Christ has a job to do. And that job is to make disciples, which requires us to consider this. Sometimes we think evangelism is done by making babies. Yes, that's sort of kind of true, but not the gist of this. You see, we as Christians are called to make disciples. So we together, not me, the pastor, we together are to be making disciples. And you sit there and go, but I'm not good at it. My heart really isn't in it. Every time I open my mouth, I seem to stick my foot in my mouth. Trust me, when you read chapter 4 of Jonah, you'll find out that Jonah's heart was not in this evangelism task. He wanted to have nothing to do with preaching the good news or calling people to repent in Nineveh. He was quite opposed to the idea. And yet the word of God in his mouth did the work. So here's the idea. Christ is the one who has been fished by the fish of death. And he's come out the other end alive. We are now fishers of men. We have been caught by Jesus and in the waters of baptism been brought from death to life. We are now made alive and we are partnering with Jesus in this great fishing venture. The great fishing venture of making disciples of all nations. And what does that require us to do? To cast the net of God's word. That means you get to tell people to repent. Not just me. You get to tell people that Christ has bled and died for their sins. Not just me. You are fishers of men now, having been caught by Jesus. Not just me. You read in Ephesians, my job is to equip you for the work of ministry. So think of it this way. Those of you who are looking for fishing supplies, I happen to be an expert in this stuff. I know the exact nets that you need. I can even show you how to cast them. I can even show you how to haul them in. And if you're going out and using them, and you don't even need a fishing license. Jesus has already given you that in the Great Commission. You don't even need one, and there's no limit There is no limit. You don't have to sit there and go, well, my limit's five today. Nope, no limit. 
So come to me. Come to this church. We will outfit you all. Get your waders on. Get a hat and some sunscreen. And get out there and cast the net of God's word. And see the fish that God will bring in. When people believe God because of the words that you've been given to speak to them. In other words, the caught go and catch. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be listening to the Sunday School lesson I delivered this past Sunday, taking a fuller look. We're going to actually look at Jonah chapter 4. We're going to look at Acts 13. we got, got a lot of stuff we're going to be looking at here as we consider the broader implications regarding evangelism. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. Email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Facebook, Pirate Christian. That's all you need to know. We'll be right back. This might feel like theological waterboarding, but you'll get used to it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hello, I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes. Uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon. That's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey, I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Yeah, well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve packet. Well, of course it's in the wrong package, sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? 
Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. <coughs> well, well, I, I'd better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, Christ-centered uh, gospel Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, Our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor never actually works through biblical texts and preaches what they say. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring 
Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world, and you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. By the way, there's three yellow buttons. i got to keep remembering that. You get to pick your rank in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, it is Gunners Made at twenty four ninety five a month, and then Master Gunner forty nine ninety five a month, and then Quartermaster ninety nine ninety five a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. Uh, the, the other way you could support us is by clicking on the donate button, uh, which allows you to choose or decide the amount that you would like to contribute and partner with us with. Or you could do it the traditional way by making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then sending it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And uh, last but not least, uh, you can click on Become a Patron and support us on Patreon. Uh, that's the way you do that. All right, let's get into the next portion here. This will be a longer segment, uh, you know, and uh, no, no, uh, no more commercial interruptions. Uh, the name of the lesson is Right Choice, Wrong Reasons, talking about evangelism and the power of the Word of God and how uh, the, the effectiveness of evangelism is not dependent upon the heart of the evangelist. Something to think about. But let's get to it. Uh, If you want to open up your Bibles in preparation for what we are going to hear, uh, go ahead and get over to uh, Jonah chapter 4. Here we go. Let's pray and we will get started. Lord Jesus, again, we humbly come before you, understanding that your word reveals that apart from your Holy Spirit, we cannot rightly understand your word. We ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds so that we may rightly understand it, so that we may confess what you have revealed regarding yourself, and that our lives would be an outward expression in obedience and love towards you and fervent love towards our neighbor of the faith that you have given us in Christ. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wanted to take the occasion today... Um, to build off of one of the themes from our sermon today. You'll note that the text, I used uh, the Old Testament and New Testament text to really key in on evangelism. And I wanted to save kind of the tougher topic for Sunday school today. And we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. Now, when I was growing up, when I was growing up and I was in the Nazarene church, the Nazarenes made a big to-do about always having doing things with the right motive. And by the way, that's actually an important thing. But as I I noticed that because I'm a sinful human being, that I didn't always have the right motives. Sometimes I did the right thing for the wrong reason. Have any of you ever done that? The right thing for the wrong reason? Not too long ago, I told about how when I was a youth and I went to the Care Youth League summer camp, that I wanted to get that gold neckerchief. So I was doing all the right things for the wrong reason because I wanted everyone to tell me how great of a Christian I was, which is the wrong reason for doing your good works, by the way. That uh, doesn't border on pharisaicalism. That's like all the way into, into it. The idea then here is this, is that there was, a te- there was a text that really challenged me. And I remember having a conversation with my youth pastor about it. And the funny thing was he wasn't able to make heads or tails of it either because it contradicted what he was preaching. Let me show you the text. The text is in Philippians chapter 1. And the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Philippi, is talking about how there are some who are preaching the gospel with unpure motives. 
Listen to this. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And he's talking about his imprisonment. He's talking about the fact that he's been locked up, and this is actually being used by God for the advancing of the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Which doesn't make any sense if you think about it. Paul got arrested, so we're going to now go preach the word boldly without fear because he's arrested. That seems a little counterintuitive, but the text continues. He said, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, others from goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm here, put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. There were people literally preaching the gospel in order to make things worse for Paul. That's what the text is saying. And what's Paul's attitude? Well, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And you sit there and go, what? How can he rejoice in that? Well, if you remember, last week we looked at Romans 1, and in Romans 1 it says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel itself The gospel itself is the power of God into salvation. So let me ask you a question. If Kongsvinger had a pastor who was a nefarious, evil person and nobody knew about it, and then it came to light that he's actually a war criminal, criminal that in Kosovo, you know, he was killing Serbians and things like that, and that he had somehow hidden his identity, and he's not really a Christian, he's just pretending to be one, and he's here and he's preaching the word. And he's administering the sacraments, baptizing your children, absolving you of your sins. Would the gospel be any less effective in that guy's mouth? No. (laughs) Would baptism be ineffective because of how wicked and evil he really is? Nope. (laughs) So here's the interesting thing. The effectiveness of the word of God is not dependent upon the righteousness or lack of righteousness of the one proclaiming it. The efficacy of the word of God stands singularly on God. And so you'll note here that Paul literally is saying, there are some people out there who are preaching the gospel and doing so with completely impure motives. In fact, the motive of them preaching the gospel is to cause Paul pain, to make his life miserable and get him even into more trouble. To which he says, right on. Doesn't make any sense, does it? Now, let's take a look at Jonah 4. I held that out today, but I want to take a look at it because it's oh so interesting. Jonah 4. And I'll give myself a little bit of context. Remember, our pericope in our Old Testament reading today ended with verse 10. Verse 10 says, When God saw what they did, this is the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, And he did not do it. Now, normally, when Christians preach the gospel, when those who believe in God proclaim the truth and call people to repent and invite them to repent and believe and be forgiven, normally what happens when God acts and people are brought to repentance, 
the person preaching it goes, that's the best thing ever. Revival has broken out in Nineveh. Let's praise the Lord. Not so Jonah. No, he was quite upset. Which tells you, even his preaching, he did it because he had to. Not because he wanted to. And this is where we get, it gets interesting. The Ninevites repent. This displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was fit to be tied. Now let's consider the reasons for this, if you would, if you know your history of these, this particular people group that the Ninevites come from. They, I've described them in the past as they were so horrific in their war crimes they literally made the Nazis look like schoolgirls. They were extremely cruel to those who they would conquer in battle. So much so, they would take the officers from the opposing army and stick them on a pike and let them die with their bodies suspended on a pike. Horrific stuff that these fellows were into. And there were Israelites in Jonah's generation who had lost their lives to the Assyrians, who had lost their lives and cruelly and viciously so. For us, if we were living in the World War II generation, Jonah would be like a convert to Christianity from Judaism who grew up in Europe, and now his job is to preach the gospel to Nazis. And he's having none of it. He's not happy that God is forgiving them. And the reality is is that his distaste and almost bigoted hatred of the Assyrians, we mimic this in our own day. I mean, have you ever really thought this? I know I have. Man, if that person ever repented, would they really be welcome at church? And we, we know somebody like that. Maybe somebody, a public figure that we all know about. I mean, if Harvey Weinstein became a Christian and decided to attend Kongsvinger, that would be a little bit unnerving for some of us. Because we know of his sins and his cruelties. Yeah, that was big news just a few months ago. So yeah, 2017 was an epic year just as far as terribleness in the news. But then there's people in our own community that may be the case. We would love for that family to attend Kongsville, but not, not that guy or those people or that group or whatever. Because we know sometimes people's sins are like so out in the open and so known. But this is what we got to remember. God is slow to anger abounding in steadfast love, hardening iniquity. The whole point of the gospel is that it's for the ungodly and that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ dies for our sins. So there's Jonah, Torah-observing Jew. Ninevites are war criminals. He knows people who've been killed by these people terribly. And so them repenting and God not destroying them has Well, got him sideways. He's triggered. So, he prayed to Yahweh and he said, Oh, Yahweh, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Notice he's holding that against God. (laughs) So we could tell, kind of bracket this, chapter 1 and chapter 4. In the in-between in chapter 3, when he's out there doing the preaching and the teaching, is he doing so from a pure motive and a good heart? No. 
And the Ninevites repent. This tells us of the efficacy of the word. Because God's word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Let me show you another text real quick so you kind of get another piece of context. If you would, go with me to Romans 10. Vital text in understanding how the gospel works. And I think I'll add some context here. We'll we'll start at verse 1 and I'll just keep reading because it's really just, just a great piece of scripture. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Talking about his fellow Jews. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So this is the the perplexity that Paul is going through because there are people who are genetically Jewish, descendants of Abraham, and they are opposing the gospel. And he says of them, it is his desire that they be saved. But the problem is they're trying to establish their own righteousness. They are trying to say, I can do this myself. And as a result of that, they're not submitting to the righteousness of God, which is given by grace through faith. You see, this is one of the things we talk about as Lutherans. We like to say it this way, and I'll say it from time to time. There are really only two religions. There really are only two. One takes on various forms. The one religion is the religion that says, I'm going to earn my salvation by my good works, by my obedience, by my righteousness. So Islam is an example of this. Five pillars of Islam. You say that Muhammad is the prophet of Allah. You say your prayers so many times a day towards Mecca. You make your pilgrimage. You give your alms. And maybe, just maybe, just maybe. See, there is no assurance of salvation in Islam. None whatsoever. If Allah wills, maybe you'll be saved. One of the reasons why, one of the reasons why that there are so many Muslims who are jihadists and are blowing themselves up or engaging in terrorist acts that result in them dying is because one of the only ways you can have any assurance of salvation with Allah is if you are martyred. And so they have this twisted idea of what martyrdom is. And so I'm going to take out the infidels by blowing myself up. And by me being martyred, now I can be assured that I'll have my 70 virgins. It's a, it's a, it's a way of certainty. Apart from that, there is no certainty in Islam. And here's the thing. In all of the self-righteous religions, and there's really only one, it's all self-righteousness, there is no assurance of salvation. Zip. Because the question that is always sitting in the back of your head and nagging you over and over and over again is, have I done enough to be saved? Have I done enough? When will I know I've done enough? So pull out the Ten Commandments, start walking through them. Is the ten, is, are the Ten Commandments a, the type of list that you can check it off and say, done it, now I know I'm saved? <laughs> no. Good luck on that. So there is no assurance of salvation. Now, for those who are trying to save themselves by their own self-righteousness, the gospel is actually a threat. And the reason why it is a threat is because it opens the doors to anybody being saved. And one of the interesting things is is, is that people who are self-righteous kind of intuitively believe that if my salvation were free, 
that that would somehow mean that I would live a, a life of rank immorality, as if somehow the gospel becomes a license to sin. And they're very threatened by the gospel. And you'll note, what do the Pharisees say about Jesus? Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? Does he not know that that woman is a sinner? The town hooker just believed in Jesus, and he's eating with her. This can't be. But salvation is by grace through faith alone. Good works always follow. Make no mistake about it. The person who says they believe in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and that they are trusting in Him alone for their salvation in total and then lives like the devil has turned the gospel into license to sin, that person is not a Christian. It just it doesn't work that way. So as a Christian then, you, are, you have a regenerate nature and you have your own old sinful nature and they're doing this day in and day out. What does it feel like to be a Christian? To be a Christian feels like you're at war within yourself. That's what it feels like. And I'm not worried for the person who is struggling. I'm worried for the guy who's given up the struggle. That's the guy I'm worried about. The person who comes to me and says, Pastor, I'm just struggling with this, that, or the other thing. We can work with that. Confess, receive the absolution, continue to, by faith, mortify your sinful flesh. Welcome to the club. We're all in this together. But the person who says, I believe in Jesus, shows up to church, you know, every so often, and then just lives for themselves, they don't have faith. There's no faith there at all. How do I know? They're not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. There is no repentance. There's no effort at all to mortify their sinful flesh. And worse, if you try to confront them on it, they get in, their, in your face and tell you how you're judgmental and how you're this and how you're that. How dare you judge me? How many times have I heard that in that tone of voice? Yes. I never quite understood when Jonah goes to the Ninevites and says, repent, and they just all repent. I mean, had they been Hebrews at one time? No. Why why would they? I mean, I realize the power of God, but it's like, I mean, it would be like going to Adolf Hitler and saying, repent. Yes, and And he did. And okay. Okay. Is that the power of softening those people? Oh, it, it is totally God's work. So here's the deal. Let me let me ask you a question. You actually answered your own question with your question. You really did. But you erased the answer with one word. But. But is one of those words that has this magical ability to erase all of the things in front of it. You said, I understand the power of God does these things, but... No, 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 no. Take the butt out. Take the butt out. Get your butt out of the way. <laughs> I knew I was going there. Okay, just, just gave in. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You could see me going, yeah, just jump off the cliff. Okay, now we got that out of the way. We can move along. So here's the idea. Do you have the power to bring anybody to repentance? No, it has to be God. You, we're all dead in trespasses and sin. And I mean that. By nature, that's, that's Ninevites, Norwegians, it doesn't matter. Germans, Poles, whatever the nationalities. We're all dead in trespasses and sins. And it's God. Let me show you another but that erases that so that you can kind of see it from Scripture. I'm going to open this up in a different tab and then we'll come back 
to Romans 10. Take a look with me at Ephesians 2. Over and again, I keep coming back to this passage. And the reason I keep coming back to it is that this is ground zero for understanding how the Christian faith works. And you, you could say you Ninevites, you people from Oslo, from Warren, from Alvarado, you Grand Forkians, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So that, here's how that is. That's, that includes the Ninevites. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and our mind. So don't think it's just your flesh, it's your mind also. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. How do you like that picture of humanity? Were any of you exempt from that when you were born? Not a single one of us. No way. That's the picture of humanity. But here comes the best but ever. Remember, but erases the thing before it. And here it is. But God. So watch what's being erased. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, and God's the subject, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So who's the one who raises us up? God. And He's the one who seated us with Him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Important words. It's not your own doing or it's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see the big butt there? Yeah. So then, you know, the Ninevites, I don't know who they were worshiping before Jonah comes. Yeah. Do they become like, like Hebrew believers then? And then? Yeah. But then they fell away later. No, no. Jesus says of the Ninevites, they will rise up on the day of judgment and they will condemn the people in Jesus' day who were in Israel who refused to believe in Jesus. You want to know their fate? Jesus tells us their fate. The Ninevites will rise up against this generation. Let me find it and I'll show it so you can see it. Matthew 12, 41. Let's get the context here so we can see what Jesus is saying. Do you want to know what happens to these Ninevites? Jesus tells us. Starting at verse 38, Matthew 12, 38. Some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered Jesus saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Sign. Jesus says that even an adulterous generation seeks for a sign. No sign will be given it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation, and they will condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation to condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So we know the fate of these Ninevites. They will rise up on the last day and they will condemn the generation of those Jews who persisted in unbelief and sin regarding Christ. So we know they're saved, like saved, 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 radically saved, like going to heaven saved, like your next door neighbor in the new earth could be a Ninevite. That kind of saved. That's what this is talking about. Now, then, 
here's the thing. Coming back to Jonah 4, I'll just make an allusion to this and then we'll go back to Romans 10. Clearly, it was, was not, the, their repentance was not a result of the pure heart of Jonah. He was preaching literally under compulsion. He, let's just say he was highly motivated by the negative consequences of his last attempt to not do what God told him to do. But we learn in chapter 4, he has no heart, no love for the Ninevites. None whatsoever. And it has upset him that they have repented. So how do we then understand it? Now let's go back to Romans 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer for the Israelites, the Jews who do not believe, is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. And that comes by faith, by the way. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And the present tense in the Greek makes it very clear, shall continue always to live by them. There's no way to check the list off and say, I've done it. But the righteousness that is based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? It says the word is near you. It's in your mouth. In your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. With the mouth, one confesses, is saved. For Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, when you read the Psalms, have you ever noticed that word that pops up every now and then? Selah. Selah. Do you know what that means? Have you ever read the Psalms and go, why is that there? Say, law is basically telling, it's like a speed bump. It tells you to slow down and stop. Look in your rear view mirror and consider what you just read. Think on that and really kind of take it in. The say law is God saying, don't let this pass you by. Don't just read this and not let your mind apprehend what's going on here. Stop, go back and reread that again and make sure you're really getting it. And if you have to, keep rereading it. That's what Salah means. I think there should be a Salah here. Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Salah. Everyone. That's you and me. Everyone who believes in him. Ninevite, Nazi, Norwegian, Pole. Doesn't matter. Tax collector prostitute. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Let me kind of put it to you this way. Do you know of anyone living near you who does not believe in Jesus? How are they going to believe then? Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So you have a neighbor who is not calling on the name of the Lord. How are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. 
But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. Take that and apply it to Jonah. God gave Jonah words. Jonah is not, his heart's not in this task. He's literally going through the motions, kind of compelled to do so by God. I'm not going back into that fish again. So I'm going to go and preach the words that God gave me to give. And the text says, he preached those words. Yet 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Those were not Jonah's words. Those were God's words. And it says, they believed God. Not Jonah. God. So how on earth did they repent? God repented them through his word. And they believed. And they showed that they believed in their actions. And God relented of the disaster. And Jesus says of them, they're going to rise up and condemn the unbelieving Jews of Jesus' day. God did it through his word. We must keep this in mind. So you sit there and go, listen, pastor, are you actually saying you're expecting me to tell my neighbor about Jesus? Nope. I'm saying God expects you to do that, not me. But, 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 but what if they, what if they don't, or what if they do, or what if this, and what if that passed the net? Were the fishermen of Jesus' day bait fishers or net fishers? Nets. They were net fishers. So a good way to think of it this way. You want to be a fisher of men? I can tell you what the net is. The net is the word of God. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of Christ. That's your net. So the conversation with your neighbor is about Jesus and what he's done for them. Their need to repent and that Christ has bled and died for their sins and inviting them to church. But they may not like what I have to say. I know, I get it. Been there, done that. But the other thing I've seen in my lifetime, so many times now I've like lost count, is the person who hears the word and God does something to them to where they sit there and go, you know what, you're right. You're right. And they confess their sins. They receive an absolution. They have faith in Christ. And they want to know more about Him. One of the things that we discuss here at Kongsvinger is that we have got to have a more local presence. Do we want to see disciples being made here? People going from being dead in trespasses and sins and then God applying the big but to them so that they have faith in Christ and bear fruit in keeping with repentance and bear good and do good works for the sake of neighbor because they are in Christ. In order for that to happen, we all, I'm not the professional Christian here. I'm just the outfitter. My job is to equip. And the best thing I can tell you, you want to see it happen here locally, tell everyone about Jesus. You have neighbors living next to you who are going to hell. And you have the only message that God uses to turn people around, to bring them to repentance. The Ninevites didn't behead Jonah, they repented. Your, your neighbor may behead you, but your neighbor may also repent. And it's by casting the net of the word of God. You don't even have to be good at it. 
You don't even have to have a pure heart in doing it. You could be completely upset and say, fine, I'm going to go and tell people about Jesus. That could be your attitude. And you know what? You tell people about Jesus, and the weirdest things are going to happen because God's word doesn't return to him void. Some people believe. Some people persist in sin and unbelief. Couldn't explain to it. And when I preach, weirdest thing happens. i got to tell you this. been here now three and a half years. The weirdest thing happens every single time I preach a sermon. I have no clue what that word of God is going to do in each of you. Some of you, after a sermon, will come up to me and go, Oh, pastor, it's like you put a red dot laser beam right on my forehead, and boy, you just nailed me to the wall. Same sermon. Some will say, that was the most inspiring thing ever. (laughs) How do we get such different results? Answer, I'm not smart enough to do that. You preach the Word, the Holy Spirit is working in that Word, and the Holy Spirit is going to work in us each where we are at to convict us of our individual sins and weaknesses, to assure us of Christ and His grace and mercy and build us up the way we need to be built up. God's Word does stuff because it's His words, not mine. I'm just the guy who gets to speak it. And I assure you of this, if you speak it to your neighbor, God has promised He will do things with it. It may be to condemn them. You don't know. It may be to give them life. You don't know. We're not to worry about the results. We're just to preach the word. See? I want to take a look at two passages in the book of Acts. If you would, turn with me to Acts 13. We're going to start at verse 13. This is a quintessential example of how evangelism works. Quintessential. And we learn from the Apostle Paul. What is the Apostle Paul's assessment of himself? Even as he is getting close to being martyred for his faith. Paul's assessment of himself as he's finishing his course is that he is the chief of sinners. That's how he describes himself. Romans 7, Paul talking about that inner turmoil that we all experience as Christians because we are justified in Christ and we are saints and we still have a sinful flesh. That's called the simul, by the way. And they're at war with each other. You know, he, he talks about his own inner angst and turmoil about this, where he says, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I want to do, I don't do. And he throws his hands up and says, who's going to rescue me from this body of death? But thanks be to God, he says, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul, I'm going to tell you, he is no special person in the sense that he is somehow super holy or something like that. He tried the super holy thing as a Pharisee and totally failed. Gave it up and recognized that Christ saves sinners. And so when he would go on his missionary journeys, this is the pattern that he would follow. He would go first to the place where people actually were already hearing the, the word of God in the Old Testament. And he would tell them that What the Old Testament prophesied and promised and foretold regarding the Messiah has now been fulfilled in Christ. He would preach him as crucified for sins, resurrected from the grave, and he wouldn't actually give an altar call. He'd actually give a warning. Kind of fascinating. And those who were appointed for salvation believed, and some persisted in unbelief. And here's the funny thing. 
When you preach like that, you're not going to get kind of a lukewarm response. They're either going to love you or hate you. And Paul got both. It's like the hot and cold water running out of the same faucet at the same time. Kind of fascinating. But here's what happened. Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, came to Perga and Pamphylia. John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers, made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. For about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. That's an understatement. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All of this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king. God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. You're going to notice, great summary of the Old Testament here. And when they had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all of my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, as promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he, no, but behold, after me is one coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you good news, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep, was laid with his father, and he saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. But beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work you would not believe even if one tells it to you. Now note, that's his sermon. It's written down for us by Luke. What did Paul just do there? He cast the net. The Word does the work. Or I should say, God does the work through the Word. Paul knows that if anyone hears this and God's going to work in them, it's going to happen through the preaching of the Word. So he preaches the Word and he announces to them the forgiveness of sins in Christ who was crucified and raised from the grave. He's just cast the net. 
Are all the fish in that synagogue going to come in? Nope. But watch as he draws the net in. So as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting in the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Notice the word did the work. The word did the work. Some are already believing. Some are already believing. And you sit there and go, that was a, this, there was, he didn't really even try hard. He just kind of gave a synopsis of the history in Israel and said there's forgiveness in Jesus and he was crucified and rose again. Yeah. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of Christ. Gotta admit, in the annals of evangelical history, this is not the barn burner sermon that really, <laughs> you see what I'm saying here? It's kind of a super humble thing. All he did was, you know, preach the word and tell them about Jesus and what he did for them. He didn't even have to belabor the point. You're going to notice that he didn't have three sub points to the forgiveness of sins. He just announced the forgiveness of sins. And already now there are believers. How? God did that through his word. So the next Sabbath, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, began to contradict what Paul was spoken by Paul, and they were reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, Well, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside and you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're going to turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So you're going to note, Next Saturday, the next Saturday, because that's when the Sabbath is, there were Jews who were openly opposing and reviling Paul. And Paul basically says, fine, you don't want to, you don't want to believe? No problem. We're going to take this message to the Gentiles. No sweat off my back. Maybe if you just soften that a little bit, change the message up, then they'll... No, he didn't do any of that. No compromise necessary. Cast the net. Some were drawn in, dragged him in. The rest wanted to keep swimming in their sin and unbelief. And they were hating the fact that Paul was preaching this gospel and they opposed him. They, were really be, they really came after him hard. But he didn't bend to them at all and just said, fine, we're going to take this message to the Gentiles then. That's how evangelism takes place. So when the Gentiles heard this, they began to rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. You see that? As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. But he barely even tried. He didn't do anything except for preach the word. The word did the work. That's the idea. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, drove them out of their district, and they shook the dust off their feet against them and went on to Iconium. Isn't that what Jesus said to do, by the way? If they won't believe you, Shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them and move along. He literally did that. Pretty straightforward. But what was it that made the people who believed believe? God the Holy Spirit through the Word. I mean, as far as sermons go, that wasn't really profound. And if you know anything about Paul's self-description of himself, he isn't very impressive to look at. They say that the Apostle Paul probably... Short fellow, four foot eight with a hook nose and an eye problem. He's not, and he didn't speak with eloquence at all. This is not anybody that someone would pick to be a great evangelist. 
He didn't wear a suit and tie. He was hard to look at. In fact, I've said this before, I'll say it again. I've never killed anybody while preaching. Paul did. One time he droned on for so many hours that some poor fellow fell asleep while listening, fell out of a window, and died. (laughs) You get what I'm saying here? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's right. And that's the reason why we don't open them. Anyway, (laughs) we don't want you falling out into the (laughs) graveyard and joining the rest of them. So how was it that the Apostle Paul becomes one of the greatest missionaries of all time? It clearly had nothing to do with him. God did the work, and he recognized that. He knew where the power was. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the power of God. So he preaches the gospel. That in Christ there is forgiveness of sins. That in Jesus He is the fulfillment of the prophecies regarding the one who would sit on the throne of David forever. That He died and He rose again for you and for your sins. And then He just leaves it. Because He knows that God's going to work through that. Some will believe, some will not. I remember years ago, there was a lady. We, I used to be a cub master. We actually we started a Cub Scout pack in our neighborhood because it was a fairly new neighborhood and they didn't have a Cub Scout group. So we started a Cub Scout pack, and I was the, the pack leader. So we had Cub Scout meetings once a week at my house. It was kind of cute. There was this one lady, and I'll ne- never forget her. I mean, holy smokes, this was a hard-living woman. And, uh, and she, was, she was one of the salt-of-the-earth kind of people. And some of the things she said about herself, I mean, seriously. I, <laughs> whew, it's the best way I could put it. And, uh, and so she kept coming, bringing her son to Cub Scouts, and she would stay afterwards and talk with us. And then she just opened up, literally just opened up, and said, you know, you guys seem like you're kind of religious. And I said, well, yeah, kind of, but that's, you know, what do you mean? She said, well, well, tell me about it. So what did I do? I told her about Jesus. I told her about how he bled and died for my sins, how he bled and died for her sins, and that he loved her, and that he wants her to repent and to be forgiven. That's literally what I told her. And she goes, as, no sooner do I tell her that she goes, you know what? That makes sense to me. I believe. What? Where do you guys go to church? I think I want to go to church with you. No joke. No joke. And she started going to church with us. She was confirmed, baptized, everything. And the no, I did nothing except for tell her about Jesus. I didn't strong arm her, didn't try to make her sign a commitment card, you know, didn't have her get on her knees or nothing. It's like I preached the gospel. And she goes, yeah, I think I believe that. And she still is a solid Christian to this day. I, I got to tell you, I saw a miracle take place. And there was no theological debating. There was no apologetics. There was no talking about the propitious, atoning, sacrificing, penal substitutionary, weird, highfalutin theological words. It was just a simple presentation of Jesus. And God raised her from the grave, gave her faith, and she still has it today. That's how this works. You cast the net. You are fishers of men. We have been given the great commission of making disciples. That's our job. So that's going to require us to go tell people about Jesus. Invite them to church. Tell them about Jesus. It's not up to you to convert them. It's up to God. He's the one who has to do it. Remember the but. He's the one who erases the we were by nature sinful and unclean and by objects of God's wrath. It's his butt that erases that through Christ and the preaching of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing. 
Hearing by the word of Christ. The end. All right, we'll see you next week. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.